I'm your host, Adam P. Kennedy. Welcome to America's Place in the World, featuring retired four-star United States Marine Corps General and former U.S. Special Envoy to Israel and the Palestinian Authority, Tony Zinni. We're looking at the world and America's place in it. In this episode, we're discussing crisis in the world, the role of the U.S. military, the coronavirus. It's coming up right now. Sort of looking at, you know, again, crisis in the world and the role of the U.S. military. What do you see as the world around us is facing this calamity? What is the role of of the U.S. military? How, How should it interact with the world? Well, I think we may have to rethink the, that role. You know, basically the role is to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now, obviously it was that charge and mission was written with the sense of some sort of nation-state enemy in the beginning. We soon, soon learned that there were other things that threatened our, our security, and we learned that from extremism and non-state actors and insurgencies. Then we learned uh, that our well-being is threatened by natural disasters, humanitarian disasters, and pretty soon the military's found itself with this uh, sort of expansion of missions. Uh, I think you might have to legitimize that and prepare a military to take on more broader requirements. We see with the comfort and the mercy, the, the ships, we see the medical personnel deploying. So... You know, that might have to be a bigger capacity we have to build up. We might have to rethink how we structure the National Guard and the reserves to handle more of these kinds of things, too, and maybe not so much a burden on the active forces that can still look toward their be prepared for uh, the more higher end, not higher end in terms of importance, but a higher end in terms of uh, military requirements to defend our country. So we may have to restructure and rethink it may be also that we create other organizations that look like the military but don't have military missions as such, meaning war fighting, but have response missions to things like this. So maybe we need to build a network of new kinds of organizations that learn certain things from the military, how to handle crisis and how do you structure yourself, how do you plan, how do you develop intelligence, but oriented toward, obviously, a different kind of threat or set of threats. And maybe that's a different form of, uh, you know, national service that we create, too, uh, with a volunteer force, much like we have in the military, to serve there, uh, uh, you know, as, as an alternative to the military. Hmm. What's interesting, you, you mentioned the National Guard, and, you know, obviously there have been protesters, you know, in different parts of the country talking about reopening you know, the country, and I don't I don't really get a sense of how many protesters there really are. But if that grows, if, the, if those numbers grow and it turns violent, what role do you think then the National Guard or even, the, the, again, the military should play in that situation if it occurs? Well, I think you just make some smart moves and not letting it turn violent. I mean, uh, if people are insistent, they're fighting to go back to work, if they go back to work and the risk that they're taking manifests itself and the problems, I think it will be self-correcting. You know, uh, you know, look at these meat plants where workers refuse to go to work. So somebody could say, I oh, don't know, I'm going to go back to work. Well, 
if you go back to work and your plant starts at you know has 50 cases and they're starting to spread you're not going to be working too long yeah you know and so i mean i don't see i mean i don't see where violent confrontation has to come about because of this uh uh, you know, you're going to create large segment, as of right now, the largest segment of our population that are resistant to this. And so you may say, I'm going back to work and I'm going to open up my gym. If nobody comes to your gym, all you've done is, is, is created ill will instead of goodwill. So even when it gets fixed, that will be remembered. You know, so, I mean, I would be gentle in terms of uh, how you enforce this. People have the right to uh, to assemble, but if they're going to do it in a way that threatens each other, I almost see this as self-correcting if they, if they misjudge this. Interesting. Okay. If America stays in lockdown, but other countries around the world open up, you know, Germany is starting to do some things, people want to come to the United States. Do you, see, you get a sense that we would just still continue just not, not to allow foreign citizens to visit the United States? Well, I think in the short term they're probably not going to not going to be able to visit. You know, probably with some exceptions. There are doctors and nurses that want to come here. We would, as we ease into this and we start open up to travel, we probably have to look at uh, as people come in doing checks at airports and that sort of thing, just to make sure no one's coming in that it, that is that has the virus. You know, until we get universal vaccine or something else that treats us, then we can look at cards that show you've been vaccinated or whatever. Okay. If we have, you know, there have been reports that, uh, you know, certainly in, in uh, different parts of the world, South America, that, you know, certain authoritarian governments are sort of taking advantage of the virus and cracking down more. Uh, and in terms of even the explosion of more corruption, do you, again, do you think the role of the U.S. military if things got out of hand in, in different parts of the world, what should our role be? I don't think we we would deploy the military to counter corruption in some other part of the world. I mean, I find it hard to believe that if, you know, if in Bolivia they're cracking down, there's problems there. They're, you know, we're Venezuela and we're going to suddenly send the Marines there to resolve it. I mean, that's the... 1920s, 1930s, banana war scenarios. I don't think we would do that. Okay. So do you see, in terms of other countries' military, in terms of their dealing with the virus, are there any militaries that are sort of doing very good work or sort of more active in trying to control the virus in, in, in terms of the people, or not necessarily? Well, it's hard for me to, to really... Uh to really get a handle on what the militaries are doing. I mean, what I see from news reports, I see uh, like the Italian military, the Spanish military, French military out there, you know, basically augmenting the police work and that sort of thing. You know, that could be done. We have to be very careful with that. There's obviously laws, we, you know, posse comitatus and others to how we use it, but we have a history of that. I mean, when the Rodney King riots were in L.A., military, active duty military forces were deployed. Uh, even going back in our history, when there used to be mail robberies, they put the Marines on the trains and make sure the mail got through. You have, within the states, the governors can activate National Guard as a first line of augmentation and support. So, you know, I, I, I think there's precedent for that, and I think the military can handle it. I don't see this pushing toward anything like martial law or 
country to in the streets and all. As a matter of fact, I'm pleasantly surprised that the majority of things I see is that the better side, the better angels, human nature seem to be coming out. Not out, not always, not in every case, but they seem to be. There, there seems to be more appreciation for those that are serving on the front lines of this, our healthcare people. There seems to be more people willing to help each other, more compassion. Uh, from what I see, that far outweighs the negative parts I see. You know, people trying to run scams and other things like that. Uh, so at least right now, I mean, I would say um, you can be proud of the way Americans have responded to this, especially since it hit us out of the blue. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, and it's sort of speculation, but the, in terms of the morale of the U.S. military around the world, you know, people being deployed, not being able to come home, uh, would you say, how would you sort of rate the morale, if you could take a guess? Uh, in the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. military. Um, oh, U.S. military? Yes. You know, well, here, here and around concern, the world. Uh, especially if you're sort of uh, confined to, uh, you know, a ship or something like that, to be very careful. But, you know, my son's in the military. I mean, he goes to work every day. And, you know, on the bases, they seem to have control. You know, they've, they've identified essential personnel. They're taking the steps in terms of the, the distancing and the masks and everything else. So... You know, in many ways, the militaries, because of the structure and the way things work there, they're much better able to enforce and get compliance with the measures that, that help them in that way. So I don't see any major, you know, concern. I think maybe if you're on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific, that might be a different story, and you have to be really careful with those kinds of situations. Hmm. Okay. I'm curious, you know, there's... Um there now seems to be a growing disparity between even more so between the rich and the poor and healthcare and people having just greater issues in terms of food and being hungry. Again, is there, and you were involved in a variety of missions uh, to support people around the world. Do you see us again doing anything in terms of that humanitarian aid uh, that the military might carry out, sir? Yeah, I you know, first of all, I think, you know, you, the problem here is probably the retail end. I mean, farmers are still producing, and, you know, truck drivers still have trucks, and we still have trains that can, the distribution system can probably operate uh, effectively. It doesn't require a lot of people coming together. It could be managed in some way where it's as protective as it can be. Where we've really, where this really falls down is that you're, retail and, you know, going to the grocery store, you know, people uh, panic and overbuy, people don't want to go there because there's uh, the fear of, of gathering in place, employees don't like working in that kind of environment. So the military can affect a different kind of distribution network, especially for the areas where people are maybe more, more desperate, you know, because of uh, losing jobs, not having a healthcare safety net that's that's really viable. Uh, so, yeah, that, that can, I mean, they can certainly assist in that. But I would say there's a lot of parts of our, uh, of our normal structure that you just have to organize, you know. I mean, like I said, we, we still have farmers that are growing things. We still have trucks that can drive. It's, it's you know, they're not going to be doing anything different than the military would be doing. It just got to be mobilized and organized in, in a way to do it. And then at the retail end, you have to find a different distribution node mechanism for that, too. 
you know, you see these long food lines, which probably says you don't have enough in the way of distribution centers uh, for that sort of thing. Those are alternatives that aren't necessarily bound up with the military. Military in the short term, it certainly can help with that. But you want to get out of that kind of emergency mode and into reestablishing, using the, the, the things that we have normally in our economy, the non-military things, getting them back. Because eventually when you get out of this, they're going to, you want them to be able to continue to function. If I'm running a trucking company, you know, I'd like to keep <laughs> keep going and keep doing the business, even if it's a reduced level and totally be pushed aside and this goes over to a military system. Hmm. Yes, okay. In terms of assistance overseas, I guess one estimate was, you know, there are 235 million people who are hungry. Now, by the end of this year, that could double, uh, certainly in parts, again, South America and Africa, uh, India. I mean, would you see that uh, we might do some sort of humanitarian aid via the military? Uh, yeah, I mean, I could see that. I, I think, you know, I mean, obviously we need to be sure we're uh, we're getting a handle on our own internal situation here because it's not going to be not going to be able to help others until we get a, a firm footing and control here. But at the same time, we can't ignore what goes on in the rest of the world. This is a planetary problem. It's not a, it's a global issue, not just a U.S. issue. So I think it's critically important that we reach out and we share information. Uh, we help and share the things that people need to recover. I mean, I, as we have less requirement for things like ventilators and PPE uh, equipment and that sort of thing that we begin to share these things and as we ramp up production, share it because this is a global problem. It's not going to help us if uh, you know we we basically resolve our issues here, but still around the world, this thing is is existing and can can come to our shores pretty quickly. And that's going to have an economic impact too because it's a global economy, not a national economy. So I'm curious, do you see, you talked about the goodwill that's happening here. Do you get a sense that America's relationship with, let's say, Russia or China could improve because of this catastrophe? I think in theory it could because it could show we're all in the same boat and things that have no borders can easily affect all of us and it can only be resolved through international cooperation. Uh, I mean, we're seeing uh, how much more we need the World Health Organization, and if there are problems and issues with it, how that should be fixed for the benefit of the world. I also see how this could strain relationships because, you know, there's all sorts of issues with China yet that have to be resolved as to how this was initiated and what was done in the early stages that have created the uh, problem, so it will have to be sorted out. So, you know, it it can be an opportunity if people take advantage of it. It, it could be something that makes us uh, appreciate the need to cooperation more, to cooperate more. Uh, and, but it also can be something that uh, generates more a sense of isolationism or blame or whatever. So it can be a two-edged sword. Mm -hmm. What's your assessment of how, just from what you've reading and watching, how Putin and Russia are sort of dealing with this? Well, I think they're hiding a lot. <laughs> I mean, I, you don't see much, but the numbers looked, uh, compared to other nations, looked awfully low to me. So I wondered how how honest 
their reporting was uh, in in the beginning. And then basically, from what I can see, he's kept a low profile on this thing. You know, it's more been focused in the Far East and the way the Chinese have handled this and Japanese and South Koreans and others. That's been the focal point. Interesting. So what do you... uh... (laughs) It certainly is unusual for Putin to take a low profile. What do you think? Uh, why do you think that is? If you had to speculate, well, I think in many ways they have a they have a lot of internal problems, economic and otherwise, and you know this this sort of distracts them from maybe global adventurism that they might have uh, uh, normally been up to. So, you know, I just think uh, he's probably turned to. Yeah, this has caused issues with their economy too, which wasn't in great shape. So you know he's he's had to turn inward more than look outward in in, in terms of uh, how he interacts with us and others. So I I had asked you about we talked about uh, the administration and them potentially rebounding. Where do you see China at this particular point? Do you feel that they're more transparent? Oh no, I don't feel that they're they're transparent at all. I think they're uh, I think of anything they're becoming more cagey about what they release and what they control. I mean, there's some big questions about these labs at Wuhan and what they were up to and what their role in this might have been and their initial reporting and how much they shared early on and or covered up. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of internal, uh, I think, uh, questions asked and. Uh, and, and how they adjust uh, to all this, and maybe some awareness that greater international cooperation has to happen, and how do they do that? And you know, when they when they tend to be a, a very controlling society and not liking to see information being shared or things that come out that might embarrass them, at least in their mind, you know. So you know, this is going to have tremendous economic impact on them. Obviously, when economies shut down. That was, which was a growing economy, and like I said before, was basically housing the supply chains for the world. All of a sudden, shuts down. It has an immediate impact. But then, too, when we come out of this, others may feel I don't want to put all my eggs in that basket anymore, and so it might have a longer-term economic impact on them. In terms of Hong Kong, do you think? Uh is China taking advantage of the virus in terms of trying to implement uh, more restrictions on Hong Kong? Oh yeah, I'm sure they're they're looking at uh, at this as a possible opportunity where people may be distracted or more wound up in this to take measures. I think there were some arrests that were made uh, that might not have been made in the previous atmosphere. So I think that they'll look at the crisis and opportunities they may present to get better control on things like uh, the reactions in Hong Kong. Are there any countries that you feel are doing an exceptional job in terms of handling the virus? Well, I mean, I've heard uh, anecdotal things on on the news about certain countries managing it well. It seems to me these were countries, some of them had the advantage of uh, a sparser population density and, you know, maybe not over-reliance on you know, urban areas uh, for their economy to function. Uh, some of them made uh, good decisions early on. Some have had uh, 
you know, really effective health care systems that were able to manage their own problems. But I think we have to be careful not to equate all these on the same level and say, uh, you know, this, this country did badly, this country did well, without looking at all the factors, including demographics and structure, status of the economy, dependencies, and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's just like looking at our own states, and we can see the differences already in the, within our own country. And I think those differences may even be greater in terms of looking at these things globally. So I'm curious, we talked last month about the Middle East. What is your take on, you know, Saudi Arabia and Qatar and uh, UAE in, in terms of how they're handling all of this? Well, they had a double whammy. I think in terms of the coronavirus, uh, they were on it pretty quickly. Again, they have a lot of they have a lot of wealth and sparse populations, which is an advantage. They're smaller countries. They had to worry a, a lot about, especially places like UAE and Qatar and those places that have a lot of transients come through and you know are effectively uh, international uh, commerce centers. But they got a, a, another shot uh, in terms of the uh, situation with oil, and that obviously <laughs> the, the need for it dropped way off. Nobody's driving around too much in the world. And because of that, you know, they didn't drop production. Uh, and so they're producing it and, and shipping it out. And on the other end, people that uh, were normally on the receiving end have no place to put it and no way to, to sell it. So that's rolled back on the price per barrel, which affects them. So they've had a, not only the same economic and health issues that others have had, but it's been compounded by the oil situation. So in terms of reopening the world, how does one, you look at some of the larger countries in the world, you look at India, and obviously we talked about China, but you look at that part of India and Pakistan, um, how comfortable do you think we should be that they're they're able to sort of handle their situation well? I don't think they'll they'll be able to handle it well. I think they're going to be fortunate if they can get through this and come out with any kind of reasonable maintaining of their economy and ability of their healthcare system to manage this, especially in the future if there's a recurrence or a rise in some way. These places that don't manage it as well as maybe de developed countries do are going to get further isolated from the developed world. And, and at that point, if the developed world ends up coming out pretty well, it's going to behoove us, like we mentioned before, to help others because this is a global problem and we'll come back to bite us if we don't. So, you know, if the developed world ends up finding the magic vaccine or whatever, just like polio, the the importance was that everybody needs to get the polio shots in order to kill it. And you know, after a while, when we stopped uh, this sort of 100% polio vaccination, because some people for their own belief systems and everything else didn't do it, we saw a resurgence, and then that could happen here. It's going to be a requirement to help with education, providing resources and health care support and that sort of thing into the developing world. Well, that's interesting. You raise an interesting question then. I mean, there are almost 8 billion people in the world. 7.7. <laughs> how, how are we going to, I mean, the economic strain to 
vaccinate the entire world. Is that possible? Well, we did it with polio. You know, it's when people got lax and stopped getting their polio shots and allowed it to flare up again. Uh, and, you know, if we developed a vaccine and we pretty much distribute it uh, universally, at least you'll have it available that if a hotspot begins to grow, you could immediately, you know, deploy it to the hotspot and uh, and try to cut cut it off before it uh, it, it spreads. Mm-hmm. And, and I like what Dr. Fauci said. It doesn't have to be a vaccine. It could be a spray or it could be a pill or it could be something much more easily distributed and, uh, you know, we would hope maybe we could find more easily deployable methods and means to do this. And is that something that possibly the U.S. military could be involved in, in terms of if we had a vaccine or something of that nature to help? I think you get the mindset that a bunch of U.S. Marines fly to Kenya and start giving shots, but you could you could provide the support and the medical training and have them do it. I mean, they have militaries and police and everything else, too. Right. Where do you see this in terms of of Africa? Well, I think uh, Africa has the greatest potential for this uh, becoming rampant and spreading pretty quickly because it, it doesn't have the medical infrastructure that, the, again, that you see in other parts of the world. So if this if this begins to rise at the levels we've seen in some places in the world, in Africa, it can be much more dangerous in, in its ability to spread throughout the continent. That's why places where maybe this hasn't spread as extensively, once the developed world gets control of this, we need immediately help them stem any kind of uh, spread in places like Africa. So... What are the silver linings, if any? You talked about the goodwill here in America, but are there any other silver linings, let's say on a uh, national level, foreign policy level, that uh, that we could sort of take away from this? I think there's going to be some serious lessons learned come out of this. Our ability to manage crisis is crises is not what it should have been. But I have to look at that and uh, how we do better in the future. I think a realization that when it comes to pandemics and the potential fam- pandemics, the need for a greater international or globalized system to monitor it, to analyze it, to respond to it, and you know, look at places like the health- World Health Organization and others that might have to play a bigger role. I think in many ways it uh, gives us an appreciation for how fragile we are, <laughs> you know. Sometimes we think uh, we dominate the universe and suddenly realize uh, one little crazy colored virus that you can't even see can devastate your entire species. So I think that's sobering and and in many ways could make us more appreciative of uh, what we have and how we need to preserve it. That could even go over to re-looking at things like the environment and climate change and maybe a more sobering understanding of the impact of things that can have global effect. So I think there's some things that come out of this. Unfortunately, they're because of negative reasons, but it could give us pause and make us rethink, you know, that we aren't as invincible as we think, and we Mm -hmm. need to rethink how we deal with these problems and how we help each other in many ways. It's going to require us for a while, at least, to restructure our, 
our social interactions and how we go about those. So you had mentioned the World Health Organization. I'm curious about the United Nations. Do you see, when we come out of this, do you see that the, the role of the UN could be greater or more influential or, or diminished, sir? Well, I think people misunderstand the United Nations. The people always think of the United Nations as, you know, an entity in and of itself that makes decisions. It's a hundred and what sixty some countries. It's basically supported by a handful of developed countries. It's basically driven by a board of directors of the few countries that are in the Security Council. It's easy to beat up the UN, and it's easy to the crazies look at it like they got black helicopters flying around. They're an entity in and of themselves, which is not true, you know. <laughs> and so they're going to be whatever the world wants it to be, especially with the what the, the the major powers want it to be. Mm-hmm. So we have to think, if you're a China, a United States, uh, a Russia, you know, uh, even some of the other countries like France, Great Britain, and, you know, the European countries and some of the others, we have to rethink what we want in terms of a globalized entity that has some degree of capacity and authority to deal with things like this. Thank you for joining us. Find us on Facebook at General Zinni APW and online at apkcg.com forward slash APW. I'm Adam P. Kennedy, and this is America's Place in the World.